Hello there, I'm Clara Amfo and welcome back to This City, a podcast dedicated to the stories, the places and the people of our wonderful capital city, London. Now, each episode, I'll be talking to some of the city's most recognisable names, whether they were born here or have made it their second home, to hear their very own love letter to London. My guest this week is one of my all-time heroes and I'm absolutely delighted to have her on the podcast. She is a singer, a DJ, a producer, a presenter. I'm going to say it right now, she's an icon. She went from a job as a bouncer at the Brixton Academy to going on to perform there as the front woman of her band Skunk and Nancy. I'm not ashamed to say it, as if you couldn't tell by now that I am a massive fangirl of this woman. Today's guest is the wonderful Skin. I am absolutely delighted, delighted for this episode of my podcast <laughs> because I have on an absolute hero of mine, a Don, an icon. I hope I'm not embarrassing her by all of these <laughs> hyperbolic adjectives, a visionary, a trailblazer, is skin. <laughs> well, thank you for that lovely intro. Ah. Lead singer of Skunk and Nancy, DJ producer. Look, you flip and do it all, to be fair, don't you? Well, you know, you got you got to be diverse with your actions, isn't it? You know, you know, it's funny. In the early days, like I remember this one time, I'd been on tour, and it was really early. I'd just been on tour all the time, and I got back to London. I had a dinner party, and everyone was in this conversation, and I realised that all I could talk about was music, and I knew nothing about anything else. And after <laughs> that, I was like, okay, I've got to diversify my brain and get interested in other things. Or I'm like the world's worst dinner party guest. <laughs> other things like what? Um, do you know, it's like just. I mean, I mean, I've always been political, but in those days, back 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 in yonder days before social media, it's actually quite difficult to kind of keep up with things that are going on in the world because you know you're on tour mm-hmm. and you're lucky if you see a Daily Mirror. <laughs> which is not much not yeah, my yeah, choice yeah, yeah. newspaper so yeah <laughs> you know I just think it's, it's just important to bring a bunch of books and a bunch of movies and everything you know just be interested in the world I learned that the hard way <laughs> well let's speaking of books that you've you've got one out now yes it takes blood and guts the the skin story a book that I know I've been really really excited to read Full disclosure, I haven't finished it yet, but have been thoroughly enjoying. I, I don't know when you would find time, love. Babe, do you know what? Sure. Do you know the, 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 when the autobiographies? I'm bouncing between <laughs> the moment. It's it's you and Mariah Carey. Those are the two. Oh my you're gosh, you're in great you're in great company. <laughs> um, but look, I'm so happy you've got this book out because you know you've got such a brilliant story. And the point of this podcast is about people's stories. You know, in in line with London, but it's it's bigger than London. It's 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 just life in general. But you have got such a you know you're a pure South girl <laughs> through and through I am, I am. and I want to show you yeah. something so dear listener you can't see this but what I'm showing skin is this if I hold up to this oh my god no, it's 2009 so, te- wow. so tell the people I, what you can see she has a ticket to a skunk and Nancy gig in 2009 at the Brixton Academy uh-huh. <laughs> oh so you're, you're a proper fan so you know when I um, left the, uh, the the chat for a few minutes I had to get something this is like really embarrassing now look this is my school diary from years ago. Look, there you are on the front. Oh my God. <laughs> Look at that. And on the back. <laughs> Listen. Aww. Oh gosh, that's Aces. The little cartoon yeah. stuff. There you go. Oh, you're a sweetheart. You really are. Thank you. Representation is important. And you, Philip, when it comes to weirdo black girls. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you, you, you and me and, and many, many others, um, Don. So I, I want to take you back to a couple of moments. So look, I'll show you that ticket because Brixton Academy, obviously an, an incredible venue, but Brixton, you know, yes. that, that is, that is your London route. So talk to me about the house in which Skin grew up in. Well, you know, I grew up right in the centre of Brixton on Nursery Road, which is the in between Marks and Spencer and Superdrug. There's a little alleyway, and then you have Nursery Road. So I grew up there, and there's one of the, in those days. I grew up with there wasn't many cars going down that road, so we literally just played in the street. It's a skinny road, and um, so that's where I grew up. But there's a sports centre at the top of the road, and we used to access it by crawling through everybody's back gardens along the wall. <laughs> and then in the other direction was Brixton Market, and that was kind of my world. When I was growing up. I mean, we when we were little, I didn't really go m- much places out of Brixton. Mm. But I used to watch Top of the Pops, you know, and Top of the Pops was like my my invisible friend, like a window into another world. So yeah, Brixton in those days, it was um, we lived through two riots. Um, and it was quite, it's not the kind of um gentrified, beautiful place that it is now, you know, mm. which is what we demanded. You know, we we demanded that. We demanded Brixton. You know, it was so underfunded. So we demanded that they kind of put some money and some facilities into bricks and whatever, which they did. And now they want to kick us all out. <laughs> you know, uh, well, yeah. Well, let, let, let's talk about that. Like, what What were you doing as a kid? Like, you know, you mentioned like you know playing in the street. Like, what were you doing to kind of keep yourself busy those times? And also, I'm really intrigued about you know you you living through two riots. Like that's yeah, that's mad. You know, I mean, um, it basically we we I think when you're kids, you know, you just make up games wherever you're going to make up games you know we used to play football Mm -hmm. I played a ton of table tennis I mean um, okay. Even now, I loved I, I, my bat. My table tennis bat costs 150 oh, pounds. I don't. It's miss. a boo- it's a bougie bat. <laughs> it's a it's a bougie <laughs> bat. <laughs> yeah, so it has seven layers of rubber. Um, and we just kind of um, we we every knew everybody. We knew there's all different kinds of people. We knew everybody. In the centre of our world was the church because my mum was church warden and my mum was just church church church. Oh, trust you know? me, trust um, me, I know them ones. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and you know, I would say okay, it was poor. And there was issues, but I feel like I had a, a quite a, a happy childhood. And I think just because um, it was poor doesn't mean it wasn't great. You know, we, you know, we were four, there were four of us and we were always running around with each other. We were our own little football team. Um, and there was um, all the disused houses, all the broke down houses. We used to kind of like climb into them. And that was like our little playground in all these old disused houses that were at the bottom of the road. So... It was kind of like, you know, there was no social media. There was no, you know, very few video games. And one thing you knew that you weren't going to go to one of those places where the video games were, because there were always dodgy people in there. And right. um, and it was just kind of, I, I, I think Brixton, as I said in the book, gave me an attitude and a sense of who I am. And and also just the streetwiseness, you know, the peripheral vision streetwiseness and sussing people out. I think that when you grow up running around the place, you just have a very good you know, BS indicator, yeah. you know, of, or, and you have a very kind of, um, you know, you, you kind of try and keep yourself out of danger because there's a lot of danger in places. So that's what Brixton did to me. And I still I still have that vibe with, it, with myself now, you know, I've, I'm always defending Brixton. And, and, we, and we see that, that that energy like in you on stage as well, for sure. Yeah, you know, I, I was a long, I grew up a very shy, quiet church girl. And at mm-hmm. some point I just turned around and rebelled. Um, I mean, I think I think it's been a very kind of um, 
it's like a, I would say to get to play rock music has been a bit of a ping pong ball, you know, ping pong, it's like boom, 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 boom. And finally, after going all around the house and doing all kinds of different things, I got to do the thing that I wanted to do mm. because it was, I had so many things to fight against because people didn't see me as leasing of a rock band. And I had to kind of get over all everybody's things by just being so ferocious on stage and so strong. I mean, like you, you probably have the same thing, you know, I think as black people, we always feel we have to be much, much, much better than everybody else to get the same dues mm -hmm. and to get the same respect to get the same push and coverage um and that's why on stage you know the band we we, we just went for it you know just mm -hmm. go for it with every fiber of our body because that's what it took you know in those days when Britpop was massive mm. you know we 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 weren't the kind of face of what that Britpop wanted to represent so mm. we had to just kind of just just be better <laughs> you know absolutely um, and I, I feel I still feel that now in everything that I'm doing well look babes you're still here obviously yeah. <laughs> but, and, and I'm, I'm so I'm so intrigued by by the idea of like teenage skin I mean you've spoken to us about when you were like you know little little playing out in the streets to your friends and that but you know what do you do like when you're I don't know 15 16 17 like you're really sort of like coming of age you're developing your music taste all of that and you turn around to your Jamaican God-fearing parents who just like you know what I want to I want to be I want to be the lead singer of a rock band or I this this is the this is the energy that I can I see myself delving into creatively and professionally well do you know I think the most important thing that happened to me is I had to leave you know, mm. I had to leave Brixton. I had to leave my community. I had to go, I think that I had to reinvent myself. I had to go and study and be somewhere where people didn't know me. So I could start all over again. Because if you grow up in a tight community, people prejudge, you know, they've known you from you a little, little. Mm. And they have all those prejudgments that go along with it. So the first thing I did was I left um, Brixton to go to study um, interior architecture up, all the way up north. So, so in, middle, in Middlesbrough, right? In Middlesbrough, yeah. yeah. And that, I just reinvented myself you know um and I just thought well nobody knows me here I'm just gonna blag it <laughs> you know I'm just gonna blag being confident I'm gonna blag knowing what I was doing um and by that time I'd been working as an architect in London uh, for various agencies so mm. I, I was kind of I'd already been working doing a job that I was about to study mm. so um I kind of went to the top of the class quite quickly um, and I just, it's just that sense of like, I just think everybody should do it. Everybody should leave wherever they're from and challenge themselves and just go and try and just go to somewhere where nobody knows you so you can try and just be who you really want to be. Um, and that was it really. And that, I rebelled. I was like, okay, I'm not going to church anymore. Um, mm. It's not that I don't believe. I just didn't want to be in a world where everybody knew me. No, I, I get that. It's, um, I think, uh, we, uh, yeah, let's talk, let's talk about that more actually, because I think, you know, there's a lot of people who are listening to this podcast who probably aren't aware or anyway familiar with the sort of, um, I guess the, the church scene, the black church scene. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and it can go, I mean, there's, there's so many levels to it because you can be like apostolic, you can be, uh, like, uh, presbyterian, like, there's, Pentecostal, I mean, oh my God, yeah. a, a seven day event is, there's like, there's, there's so many, yeah, yeah my mum's an apostolic, she goes to church in Voxel and like that's um, what she pre-lockdown she does she does zoom church now she has her she does my mom does that too it's crazy yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> just like I'll text her be like mom can we have a church I heard I'm, I'm doing zooming I'm, I'm I'm having zooming with pasta I'm like okay cool but it, it's it's in, it's intense you know those communities yeah I mean I went to a Church of England kind of white church, you would say, with lots of different people in the morning. Mm. And in the afternoon, we went to, I think my mum just wanted to get rid of us for the day. In the afternoon, <laughs> we went to the Pentecostal church, which was down the road. That didn't have a choir, <laughs> literally. Wow. The, 
I was, you know, I think back to myself, I like, got one Pentecostal church that didn't have a choir. And it was, you just spent your whole Sundays in church. And I got to the point where I was at school all week. I had a Saturday job because I didn't have any money. So I had to go and get a Saturday job. That's paying me £11. And where was that? Woolworths. My first Saturday job. Were you a decent employee? I was a very good employee. I was a good girl, you see. I didn't get bad till later on. <laughs> and then I, and then all day on Sunday was church. And I just got to a point where I was like, I need some time for myself. And I'm not going to go to church. All my, I, got, I need a day off. Because, mm. you know, you get to 40 and you've got exams. You've got this, you've got that. You know, you're trying to discover yourself. You get into fashion. And then you have no time. So that mm. was one of the reasons. I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm tired. I'm not getting up and going to church anymore. Um, and um, and that's, was, I think that rebellion was the first. That was the first rebellion. There were many others. Um, and I think I just got something in me where it's like, if I'm not happy, I have to change it. You know, mm-hmm. I have to do something about it. Leaving London, you mentioned that was, that was part of your rebellion and like and going to Middlesbrough. How did that make you feel? Like, did you feel fearless for it? Were you were you shitting yourself? Like, what what what? what? I was really excited, actually. Yeah, I wasn't scared at. I was actually running away from this really abusive boyfriend that I had and I just needed mm. to get far away as mm. pop from him as possible. Um, and I'd finished that relationship and then I just like went, you know, five hours on a bus up north to Middlesbrough. Um, so I was definitely running. I was running away from my community. I was running away from everybody I knew. And I was also running away from this boyfriend. Mm. Um, and I was, I just remember just being so excited to just be in that. I mean, I was a, like you, you know, Jamaicans got their children doing everything. So mm. we have to wash, we have to clean, we have to tidy, we have to cook. We know how to do all those things. So, I mean, I was looking after myself when I was nine years old, you know. Um, and so I wasn't scared or frightened or, you know, anything like that. I was just really excited to be looking after myself, paying my own bills yeah. and living in, and, you know, just being an adult. I just was dying to be an adult. I wanted to be an adult from when I was like five years old. I was always like, oh, when I grow up, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. You know, dreaming. Um, And I just loved it from the second I got there. I Mm. was just so happy, you know. Um, And I found some really lovely people that, I mean, in the very first um, year, I just found great people. And then we all decided to get a house together, rent a house together. And we just had the best time. Because they were the kind of group of people that we used to have parties and whatever. But then they studied. You know, we all studied and we all worked hard. <laughs> you know, we work hard, play hard. But then we, because we, it was, in Middlesbrough, there wasn't very many um, black students. Mm. Um, and there, but there were a lot of overseas students from African countries and stuff. And so they were just like not looked after and not, no one really thought of them. So we just basically just would go up to them saying, do you want to come around our house? We're going to have, we're going to all cook on Friday and just bring some food. We're going to have food and then we're just going to dance and hang out. Um, and we just started a little kind of club um, or because it's, you know, in those days, you're talking 1986 to 89 uh, when I was at university. You know, it was, Middlesbrough was a very strange place and it was a hard place for us to be. So it, we, we kind of built this little support structure. It, it always involved food and music. <laughs> will it? Yeah, you, will it? You found your tribe. Yeah. We made our tribe, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we made our tribe. We, um, and then we just kind of caught to people into it. So talk to me then about coming back home, coming back to London, gigging with the bands. Like, do you remember your very first home, like back in the city after, you know, you'd, you'd had, I guess, your rebirth in, in Middlesbrough? What was yeah. it like? 
I actually um, went and I helped run a housing co-op with a friend of mine um, who was actually at the church because the church had three buildings. There was the one that the vicar lived in and then there was one that the pianist of the church lived in and then there was this other building. So my friend went to the church and said, look, let's make it into a housing co-op for like, you know, young black kids. And so I helped him run it. And it was um, black British kids and a lot of kids from Namibia who were demonstrating against apartheid in Africa. So that was my first place that I lived when I got back into London, which was literally just down the, down the road, number one St. Matthew's Church. And it was just became this hubbub of like political people, you know, and there was always a big pot of chicken wings on the fire <laughs> and, and some curry goat. And Yum. people just come in and out, right? And people were just coming, we were always feeding people and we were always making banners and we were always doing this and that and getting involved. Also, that's when I was really properly started raving. You know, like I loved house music. I loved music. I was going to gigs. I was going to, because in those days, if you weren't at one place, you didn't know where next to go. Right. There was no, like, if you arranged to meet someone, you know, you had to be there. There was no texting, oh, I'll be there. There was nothing that, there was no tape pages came later so it was like you knew everybody's number in your head because you might have to go to a phone box right and call someone and it's like if you weren't there then you missed it you missed what was going to happen next so we were out five days a week because there was always something going on and it was really exciting in london there were all these different music scenes the soul to soul was massive goldie was massive he used to have a um, a drum and bass club in Covent Garden. Um, obviously, rock bands were massive, and you know there was just a lot of different things going on. And it was like you're just chasing a party around London because you go to one place, oh, you know, tomorrow, tomorrow this 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 band are playing in this venue, blah blah. And then we all go there. But if you weren't there to hear where the band was playing or when that party was going to be, then you missed it. <laughs> oh, so it was a completely different. World. And you you knew everything. You know, you go to this club, and in that corner. Well, you mates and you go to this club and in this other court, you know, there were like posses in different corners of the club and you knew everybody um, and you had everyone's phone numbers in your head. And it was really, I was so excited. I mean, I started singing a uh, university band when I was in Middlesbrough and I came back to London like, yeah, I'm going to be singing. I'm going to be doing this. And, you know, I was like 18 years old. Mm. And um, yeah, it was really exciting in London for an 18-year-old. It was really fun. Talk to me about venues. I, I need to kind of envision. I can see you already, but I just, where where was Young Skin Raven? Do you remember one of your most, I don't know, what was one of your most memorable nights out? There were a lot of illegal sound system house parties, you know, and right. those were the ones that you had, you, you know, like Fresh Beats, Lloyd, reggae sound systems and the old soap, um, Notting Hill Carnival sound systems like Fresh Beat. So there was a lot of that. Um, there were in, I used to be a bouncer as well. I was a bouncer at the Brixton Fridge and at the Brixton Academy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and me. ended up doing a gig there years later, mad. And years later, you know, like they were like, Headline. oh, it's you. And I'm like, yeah, it's my band. And they're like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, cause I used to do martial arts. And so, um, you know, I just used to, you know, do that because it's, you, you got to earn money. I was hustling, man. I didn't have any money. So I was always having these little jobs. I was doing a bit of modeling and seeing that. But yeah, venues all around the place. Um, used to go a lot of places in the East. You know, mm -hmm. I can't even remember the names, but we used to go to a lot uh, Palladium. Go used to go to some places in central London, east, north. A lot of illegal raves because that right. was um, when house music was really just beginning and getting massive. And you, we had the criminal justice bill, so it was outlawed for a while. 
lot of house parties where they would steal electricity from the lamp from the street light outside and they would just have a house party. Um, I didn't know you could do that. Yeah, that, back in the days, the sound system, they would unscrew the plate at the bottom of the lamp, the street lamp. Right. And they, would, they knew how to wire it up and get electricity from it. And that's all that we'd use. Because, you know, a lot right. of parties that they were having raves in were disused old buildings, you know, old warehouses and stuff. So um, there was a lot of kind of constructing the fun and making the fun and building the party and, you know, just getting, just making a venue out of anything. If there was like a, a disused building or squat, then that's where you'd find the best parties, to be quite honest. And that's how you developed your ear for loving house music and eventually DJing it. And Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I started DJing at um, 16 at, um, mm. at univers- at college because I had the biggest record collection. Because right. I'd been buying records. I used to buy, there was this shop in Brixton called Red Records. And I used to go and sit in a corner and I could only afford like, one record a month but he would just play me lots and lots of records and sometimes he'd give me records so I had quite a big record collection by the time I was 16 I say big I would say about 30 records <laughs> you know that's, not that big. that's decent for 16 year olds for 16 in, in the yeah. context so, of the context of that time I get it yeah I mean records to me were like diamonds you know mm. I was like if I saw a record I was like oh my god oh my god I used to get so excited with vinyl and uh, even now I have a big vinyl collection in my house. And so I was the school DJ and I used to play all kinds of music, like The Cure and television and Rolling Stones. And then I would play like R&B, you know, Dennis Edwards and Marvin Gaye. And I would just play all these great records and mix them mm. all up, Chaka Khan. And, uh, and so that I, 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 that I was a DJ before I was a singer. And then when I went to uni, that's when I started right, singing. Right, right. Um, I was in a, a stu- student band. Um, and, um, yeah, it was just, we just used to like make up, make the fun ourselves. If we wanted to do something, we would just do it and then invite people. Um, because, you know, in those t- clubs are always expensive. And especially in those days, you know, if you're a girl, you, you're always going to get in, but you have to have a look. And I was like, nah, I'm not wearing that short skirt. I'm not doing that. I'm not, you know, the push up bra and all that, you know, so we went to certain clubs, but we, the more fun was the illegal race that you could just pay one pound and get into. Mm. Well, no, it's, it's, it is that element of uh, rebellion that, you know, that we're all a sucker for. Um, so now when you DJ, especially like when, when I mean, I say that, look, we're, we're very aware that this podcast has been recorded in a year where, you know, any semblance of a, of a normal social life is a flipping mirage at this point. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, in, in a different world, where are your favourite places to DJ now? In, in London? Do you know, I, um, I de- didn't really, I don't really DJ in London. I DJed uh, more in um, New York, mm-hmm. LA and Italy. I do a lot of gigs mm. in Italy. I don't really do that many gigs in London, to mm-hmm. be honest. Okay. Um, London is a kind of a different kind of party scene. I like techno. Yeah. Um, and so, and I, I, I spend a lot of time in Ibiza. So I kind of DJ more in Italy and Ibiza and sometimes in New York and Miami and, you know, other places. Gotcha. Tech, techno and tech house. But right now, yeah, nothing is dry. Right. Honestly. <laughs> this was supposed to be a good year for me. Gosh. It's, yeah, I mean, it, it's proven to be a vintage year. And I don't know if that's vintage in a completely good way or terribly, I don't know. It would be very interesting to see how we look back on this year in like 20 years and the books are going to be written about it and all of that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I really think that's true. I mean, for me, what I've seen is creative people always make something out of a disaster. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, you know, I mean, the first three weeks I just sat on my couch and we just had popcorn and watched Netflix. And then after three weeks we're like, you know, this is continuing on a bit longer than we thought it was. I mean, 
And I think that with artists, I think what we're good at is adjusting. And okay, this is the situation. What am I going to do? I'm going to build a studio. I'm going to get a radio show. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to find ways to be creative because I think create busy people and the creative people always have to have something to do, or mm. we just feel like we're wasting our time, you know. And so I think it's it. You, as you say, what's what when people look back, what they're gonna? I think it's going to be a case of well, what did I do with my year of quote COVID? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think it's got to be like, hey, well, I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. But um, I just think also just taking some time out has been nice, you know, although I've written a book. Ca- <laughs> and, um, casual. I've done a lot of stuff. <laughs> but I'm doing things at a much slower pace than I normally mm. do them. And I qu- I'm quite enjoying that, actually. Like, just slowing it down and giving things proper time and consideration. Whereas normally I'm just running around the world and doing something as I'm on the in the back of the car on the way to the airport. That's what I'm doing this interview and doing that and blah, blah, blah. And now it's kind of very considered and everything is a lot slower and a lot more thought out. And mm. there's a lot more depth to the stuff that I, I feel I'm doing. No, for sure. And, I, you know, and as you said, you, you literally have not stopped hustling, working, what, since you were 15, 16 years old? Yeah, I mean, this is the longest. I mean, I was in New York for four months, and that was the first time that I've been in one place for that long since I was 18 years old. So, mm. I mean, I think the nature of what I do means travel. I mean, being in a rock band and yeah. DJing and everything I do involves a lot of travel. Um, and mm. I think that it's been really, if I, I always look for silver linings, man, because what's the point of looking at the negative? That's not going to help you. So um, mm-hmm. I, if I say there's a scene of silver lining, I would say I, I think the book is a lot better than it was going to be because I was sitting at home writing for 14 hours a day. Oof. And I would not have been able to do that in a normal mm. situation. So there's been silver linings in terms of sitting down and thinking about all the things I don't like about my life and mm. don't like about my career and all the things that I do like. You know, I think everybody's been reflecting. Oh yeah, uh, there's definitely been a lot of um, a lot of life editing going on. Yeah, hence, exactly. No, hence why I've got this whole massive stash of like gig tickets like on me at the moment as I speak. You, you. keep That's why them. I, I keep I keep all my ticket stubs, and I found yours. And I was just like, oh, it's an omen. Yes, I'm, ch- I'm chatting <laughs> skin today. So yeah, this ticket. 26th of November, 2009. So, oh my God, quick mass. 11 years ago. So that was Skunk and Nancy at the Brixton Academy. And that was your sort of like, like I guess like, re, like yeah, rebirth. rebirth. That was the first London gig. Um, Actually, the first mm. big London gig when we kind of reformed, when we got back together after like a, yeah. a eight-year hiatus. Talk to me about that night, yeah. It was so, I mean, that gig is phenomenal. I mean, the, you have to be careful with that gig because you have to have the proper sound because it's a very weird place to have sound. So you have to have quad- so we had speakers all over the place at the back, flying them up from the thing. We had speakers everywhere. You get this really quadraphonic, massive bass sound. Because Skunk and Nancy, we like bass. We're a rock band, but we like kick mm. and bass, you know, like hip hop kind of bottom end, you know? Mm. Um and I just remember because I always love playing um because it was one of the gigs where all my family and friends came to. My mum came. And I just remember just feeling very kind of like this. I've, I've missed this. I've really missed this. Um, and we were just on fire that night. You know, it was such a fun game. It really was. And you know what? I, I smile as you mentioned the um, speakers. I remember I literally felt them in my chest. <laughs> 
Good. I didn't mean all of the songs. I remember when you lot did Charlie Big Potato, we were just like, oh. <laughs> felt that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, properly felt that. I mean, like, just for, for you, like, you know, being like a, a, a Brixton like native, like, that must have been such an edifying moment to, to come back, to reunite, obviously, with the band and to come back to that venue. Like, it must have been unreal. It's one of my favorite places to come back. They used, um, before they um, took it down, the Astoria used to be an amazing venue as well in Tottenham. Court Road and we used to love playing that Story 1 and Story 2 um, but there's something mm. special about bricks and some venues have just got a flavour to them so as long as you respect them they're always going to you know uh, give you give you joy and Brixton Academy is one mm-hmm. of those places did you I mean it must make you feel amazing because I mean even I'm obviously I'm not an artist but every time I walk past Brixton Academy obviously name check the Nandos to the, <laughs> the left it's just what you do but like <laughs> um, when you see your name like up in lights there like it must I don't, like, how does that make you feel like I know it's quite a basic question but I would imagine like yeah if I'm really honest that feeling never gets old I always take right. that picture I always go up front and stand with the fans and take that picture of Vixen Academy with my band's name on it because these are things that you know it's like I'm I, I'm the worst person for meeting famous people because I always act like a fan and I can never know what to say and it's the same <laughs> thing I just get really excited with things like that because it never gets old for me I'm just like a little child I'm like look this one skunk collects his name in lights and um, it's just a one it's a great feeling because I think it's a difficult thing to be a musician in a band and to have a long career um, I think that rock music is kind of built for bands to do that but the way the industry now is like you know you get three years and you're out you know and so to still have a career and still be you know we go to Italy we play to up to 16,000 people a night you know so to still have that career it never gets old to see my name in lights because that's all yeah. you know it's like the first time we did Top of the Pops <laughs> I was like oh my god <laughs> and that was when my mom stopped mm-hmm. moaning at me because I'd been, I got qualified as an interior architect and then I had a job and I just walked out one day. I just was like, done. And my mum moaned and bitched and moaned and bitched until we did Top of the Pops. When we did Top of the Pops, she's like, okay then. Okay. <laughs> that was her barometer of success was Top of the Pops. And then she was like, that she never moaned again. <laughs> that, do you know what? That's so funny because that's so reminiscent of my parents. And my dad, God rest his soul, is a Ghanaian guy. And they were always, my parents have always been supportive of me, but it wasn't until I appeared on Radio 4 on somebody else's show as a guest. My dad was like, yeah. <laughs> right? Okay. You know, it's like you. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my exactly. daughter. You know, my dad yeah. used to call up radio stations when they played the record. Oh, you know, it's my dad, it's my daughter, it's my daughter you're playing. You just played my daughter. And then he'd do interviews. I was like, dad, you got to stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that's amazing you've got to stop doing that's that that's amazing my mum's the opposite people would call my mum and they would say oh um, are you Mrs. Da and she would say no I don't know this person <laughs> my mum would just my mum would like because she's protective with my dad with like likes to mm. big up <laughs> I've always been intrigued with our community and like and and our attitude to to homosexuality to queerness our attitude to anything that's sort of like a, a, essentially like non-godly yeah, exactly yeah. <laughs> and just, yeah and like when so when you became well known obviously like your your community like your your friends your family your mum's church lot whoever they'll learn oh okay that's the young Dyer girl oh she's a lesbian yes oh, she's singing <laughs> rock music how did your your mum's circles like kind of take to you? Like how how have people been with you? Do you know, it's interesting because my mum is always been like, you know, very open. She it's weird. She's got this stuff that she thinks she should say, 
because she's a Christian. But then she doesn't act on any of it. I, I, I went around to visit my mum the other day and these two guys knocked on the door and they just knocked on part they just knock on my mum's door and have a little conversation because sometimes you know like she stands outside and someone just chats to everybody who walks past the door and I said oh they're nice and she goes yeah they're nice they're really nice boys they come say hello and blah 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 and I said oh so you know they're gay right she's like no <laughs> you know <laughs> and she's like you know she she regularly she doesn't act on any of the things that she thinks that she should act on but you know the thing is I always kind of thought it's like you know my mum's always been very, very protective of me. She doesn't stand anyone dissing me at all for any reason. And even on that, you know. So she knows that they might be whispering, but she's like, that's my daughter. So you don't say nothing to me. And you don't do nothing and you don't say nothing. Keep your mouth closed. And from my, my side of it, I just don't deal with those people, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just because... The way I see it is like my presence might make them feel odd or weird or blah, blah, blah. And they're going to give that oddness and weirdness to me and make me have to deal with it. Mm. Um, my my attitude to it, it was really just very, um, you know, it's not, my, it's not my problem. You know, it's not my problem. Mm. You know, it's not my problem that they have a problem with my sexuality. It's their problem. And I think that it's really important just not to carry the weight of other people's stresses on your own shoulders because it's just going to weigh you down. And it actually stops you feeling free and feeling able to achieve things if you're worried about, uh, you know, being a woman or being gay or being black or blah, 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 blah. You know those are issues for people. You know it. You can feel it. You can walk into a room. And But it's kind of like my attitude was like, you know what? You can keep your issues, but I'm happy with those things. And I feel great. And it took me a long time to feel happy and a long time to feel great. So I'm not giving, I'm not giving that away for nothing, you know? Um, and that's always been my attitude is like, just don't carry other people's weights. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, we know, we know, we know those people in church that are going to mutter behind people's back and whatever, but mm. that's, you know, I, I, I just don't deal with them. I just don't deal with them. I don't hang out with them and I don't have them in my life because they're not going to give me anything. You know, they're not going to, you know, if, they're not, if you're not prepared to spread goodness and love and nice vibes, then I don't want to hear from you, <laughs> you know. Right on. It's, just, it's quite simple, really, to be it honest. Is. I'm kind of like, I just like, you know, you stay there because it's so, so much weight and energy trying to convince someone of something that you're probably never going to change. Because, like, for instance, homophobia and racism and sexism is never going to die. Mm -hmm. What? And so it's kind of, it just molts and melts as the years go by, the decades go by, or the centuries go by. It just goes up and down and it goes in waves and it changes its form but it's always the monster that's in the room or in the country and so for me Absolutely. I'm just kind of like I just you know I don't have those people in my life and I don't make sure I do everything I can to make sure those people have no power over me over my community over my people because you know if they're going to have if they're going to like live in a way that they don't want to change just you know I just don't want you in government <laughs> you know I don't want you to be the boss you know, I want someone else to be the boss. So, I mean, and I think that at the end of the day, you know, I was, I did this thing with Benjamin Zephaniah. Um, I just, I was just uh, in a chat with him and he ended it with saying that, you know, at the end of the day, goodness always prevails. You know, the right, the, the right way and goodness always kind of wins in the end. So even if you go in through dark patches, you know, you always come out into the light. And I was mm. just kind of, at first I was like, that's a bit cheesy. But then I thought about afterwards, I thought, you know what? He's right. You just got to keep fighting for it. Absolutely. Skin has spoken. Benjamin Zephaniah has spoken. <laughs> um, couple of last questions. Um, have to ask, do you still get the tube? 
And if so, what's that experience like for you? I ask every single person who does this podcast if they still get the tube or not. I get the tube all the time, all the time, and I never have any issues. Never. Yeah. I Do you get recognised a lot? I get recognised sometimes, but British people are quite cool about it. You know, um, they're quite cool about it. I, I couldn't do the things I do in London. I couldn't do them. In, I can't do them in Italy, for instance, because I'm too famous there. I was next factor judge mm. there. Oh, yeah, So of I can't. I can't walk down the street in Italy without people being recognised. And that's a different experience. But in England, it's kind of like, I'm just like an old rock star. You know, you know, it's like people are just cooler in London. You know, if I was Beyonce, I think it'd be different. But yeah, I get the tube because it's great and it's fast and it's 20 minutes into central London. And I, I don't get buses, though. Fair enough. What's your bus peeve if, if you have one? Do you know, I just, I, they're too slow. Yeah. <laughs> I've not got time to sit on the bus. I'm getting an Uber or I'm getting a tube. The bus is just a waste of time for me. You know, um, it's just kind of like, I know lots of people love the bus and get the bus and whatever. I would rather, I love to mm -hmm. walk. I, I walk and I run. I'm a runner. So I would, I just would rather walk than get the bus because it's going to take the same amount of time yeah. for the journeys I have to do. Um, and yeah, I walk to the tube station, which is about 15 minute walk. Because I'm in East London, there's no bloody tubes in East London. And then I um, get to my end and then I just go straight 20 minutes into London. And I love walking because I listen to my headset and I listen to podcasts and books and music. And it's so I love just walking on the street and listening to one of those three things. I'm an audio book file. Oh, yeah. Tell me about it. Audio books and podcasts with people watching as you walk. Is that one of my exactly. favorite things to do in the city? And I steal so much stuff for songs in that way. I mean, for me, um, the tube is really creative because I look at people and I hear overhear people's conversations and then my head spins and I've stolen so many lyrics. That's why this going to see lyrics are so long. Who put Little Baby Swastika on the wall? Oh, it takes, yeah. doesn't got to be cool. You know, it's, there's a lot of, you know, long titles because my, the songs are conversational in their, in their nature. And mm. I, I, I think that if, you know, at one point I was always, um, getting chauffeur driven and being in cars and I don't like it you know I would rather be on the tube any day than sit at the back of a car you know I'd rather walk but you know sometimes you've got a lot of luggage you've got to get an Uber to the airport you know but most of the time I travel light so I can get on the tube and I can get on the Heathrow Express and just it's just nicer isn't it yeah, I hear you. Well, dear <laughs> listener, if you're ever on the tube and you're talking loudly and you hear your song on a Skunk and Nancy record, just know. You're, <laughs> you're not uh, asking for any publishing. Own, I was going to say, you're owed some PRS. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't ask me something to be I wrote the song, bitch. Okay, yeah. Actually, you said it, but I made it into a song. Yeah. <laughs> Skin, thank you so, so, so much for thank this you. chat. It's been lovely to talk to you. And I'm just, I, yeah, listen, without, you say you get excited about your heroes. It's, it's such a surreal, but joyous thing that I get to chat to you and you're an actual, an actualized human being and you're not gassed and you're just fab. Thank you so much. Big <laughs> love you. always. Mwah. Thank you so very much for joining me for another episode of This City. I've been your host, Clara Antho. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please let us know. Tell a friend to tell a friend. Please rate, review, and don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you can catch the next episode as soon as it lands. And also, do let me know who you would like to hear next. I'm all ears. Thank you so much again for listening. This has been a Sony Music fourth floor creative production. <laughs>